This is Jesse Parker and Tommy Niblack. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Faith, Faith Chair, where we answer the questions that arise at the intersection of faith and culture. And on today's episode, Jesse and I are joined by our good friend, Sister Helen Prejean, author of Dead Men Walking, as we talk about how to love your neighbor. I hope you're ready. Let's get into it. All right, everybody. We are back, and it is actually a wonderful Faith Chair Friday because it's actually Friday and we're not recording this from Saturday. So that's the first good thing. The second good thing is Jesse's hair still looks good. He doesn't need a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> we're able to, to, to function this weekend without a haircut. And the third amazing thing about uh, Faith Chair Friday is that we are joined, Jesse and I are joined uh, by who we hope to be a dear friend in the future, um, Sister Helen Prejean. And for those of you that do not know who Sister Helen Prejean is, uh, don't feel uh, feel at home. Because up until a month ago, I didn't know. Two months ago, I didn't even know who Sister Helen Prejean was. Um, but my wife actually introduced us through a criminal podcast. And I was like, I don't know how, but I need to talk to this lady. And uh, I'm so grateful that you decided to come on. And speak with us. Sure. So, but, hello. Hello. <laughs> That's all right. Before this, I didn't know who you were either. So we either. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Jesse either. I didn't know who Jesse was either. So, hey, nice to yeah. meet y'all. There we go. Um, before before we get started in anything, I just have to ask you a question. Who that? <laughs> who that say they're going to beat them saints? Who that? <laughs> who that? Who that say Katrina gonna knock out our city? Baby? Who that say we can't get past this COVID? You Who know that what I'm say saying? We can't have penal reform in this country. Who that say we can't Who end that? the death penalty? Who that? Who that? <laughs> I I had to. That's the I had some friends from Louisiana and they they would I was like, why do you guys say that? And so they schooled me on it. So anytime I meet someone from Louisiana, there you go. Who I gotta that? do it. Yeah, great. So sister Helen. For all the people that don't know who you are, could you do a quick introduction? Just who you are. Tell the people who you sure. are. Sure. Uh, I'm a Catholic nun. I live in New Orleans. Um, I have done different things teaching, mostly what what I call regular nuns work, teaching in a Catholic school, uh, being a religious ed director in a Catholic parish out in the suburbs. Uh, and then I awaken to justice of the gospel of Jesus uh, as Pope Francis says, to get out on the margins to be with people suffering and live my whole life in New Orleans for a long time in the suburbs and disconnected from the suffering. 50% of the, the population of New Orleans, African-American people struggling under all the, the racism, police brutality, the whole bit. I'm separated from it. I'll wake up to it and move into the St. Thomas Housing Projects and African-American people become my teachers. And I learned the other Americans. And then while I'm working in the neighborhood there in St. Thomas at a place called Hope House, I get an invitation one day. Casual. Never knew this was going to change my whole life. Hey, Sister Helen, you want to be a pen pal? Somebody on death row? I go, yeah, sure. I was an English major. I'd write some nice letters. I never dreamed that two and a half years after writing these letters to a man on death row, Patrick Sonier, I would be present at his execution. 
and tell him to look at my face when Louisiana killed him in the electric chair and it changed my whole life. So I wrote the book, Dead Man Walking. Mm -hmm. Then I've written the book, Death of Innocence because I've been with two people that were innocent and were executed anyway because the appeals courts are set up with so many blocks that you can't get your appeal in to be, when you didn't have a fair trial and the truth wasn't told, there's no way. Those appeals courts are full of barbed wire, blocks, all kinds of ways to prevent you from. So I've been with two innocent people who have been executed. And then the yeah. third book I just wrote called River of Fire was about awakening, my life story about awakening uh, to justice. That's amazing. I've, I've read both of them, uh, Dead Man Walking and River of Fire. Just finished River of Fire. Um, absolutely loved it. And the way I describe what's going on in my life right now is uh, how you described your awakening uh, through the events of Vatican II. So I'm like, I'm having a Vatican II experience in my life right now. So, well, that was um, a big thing. That was a big yeah. thing. I mean, like the Reformation with Martin Luther Huge. and the Protestant Church. This is really big for the Catholic Church. Yeah. It was really big, yeah. Humongous. So... Jesse and I have compiled a list of questions, and while we want to um, maximize the time and, and, and your time, while we want to hit these questions, we, we want to be able to talk about the things that, that you want to talk about as well as things that are on your heart. Um, so let's just get started. Jesse, you want to you wanna start? You want to jump in here? Yeah, yeah. I will probably call it maybe more of a preliminary because this is a question I always have that I'm always curious about um, with people from any faith background who find themselves in in ministry, dedicating their lives to ministry. Um, you know how how did you how did you stumble upon that call? How how did how did Helen Perjean become sister Helen? Okay, great. Well, I had great nuns that taught me. And I always wanted to be a teacher. And these nuns, I know y'all hear all these mean nun stories. This nun with this ruler uh, <laughs> slapping kids around and all. The funniest cartoon I saw about a mean nun shows Godzilla the nun, huge, imposing <laughs> nun, standing over a little boy who's writing on the blackboard, I am personally responsible for the torture and death of Jesus. I am personally responsible. Oh, we said I got wow. some mean stories. Okay, if y'all not in Catholic circles, maybe you haven't heard. But most nuns are wonderful people who serve, and I happened to meet those sisters in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, St. Joseph Academy, and they taught me. And they were faithful women. They were fun. They were human. They were warm. And I said, I want to. I want to do that. Plus. I wanted to be in a life. I never really could picture myself settling down with like one little man, one little family, little picket fence. I think I'd have made a terrible mother, honestly. I'm real absent-minded, you know. I'd be the kind you'd hear me on the 10 o'clock news. I'd go get my groceries. I'd put my baby on the roof of the car. Off, I'm going to be on the 10 o'clock news. It's better for the children. Oh, wow. right. I mean, it's, it's just... There's different ways to give life, generate life. And in the sisterhood, that has happened to me. So I tell the story, Jesse, of becoming a nun. And I'm going to tell you what. 
when you became a nun in the 1950s, before Vatican II happened, yeah. when I left my mom and daddy's home, I thought I would never step foot in that house again because it was taking the gospel seriously when Jesus said, when you leave home, you leave home, let the dead bury the dead and stuff. It was very, very strict. So you kind of lived in this cloister. And I was dressed really in medieval garb of, you know, a complete habit from head to toe. What we taught, all the kids saw of us, all you saw of a nun was face and hands. Because it was like <laughs> head was covered. We had these veils, uh, yards of wool serge down to our toes. In the long veil, and I mean, you know, I'm kind of scatterbrained. I'm loose and free in my movements. And I caught it. My veil caught on fire in, in the four, first fourth <laughs> class I caught. Because we, we were doing a prayer thing, and we had lit a candle. And so the kid said, well, sister, during the prayer thing, can we leave the candle lit? And I go, yeah, sure. So they were the ones who told me I was on fire because I had, they were all like these little guppies with their eyes wide. And they all said at the same time, sister, you on fire. Man, in my veil, it caught fire. There's this flame licking behind me. Oh, my gosh. I'm packing out that that flame. and Is that that where the title for the book came from, River Fire? that's (laughs) That's part of the fire right there. So anyway, that's why I joined the sisters. But then when Vatican II happened, see, before Vatican II, holiness meant you just would obey your superiors, you pray, you you know, you pray for people, you go, you teach, you love the children, you teach. But it was in a confined circle and you didn't have any self-direction. It was just simply to obey. In fact, that passivity was throughout the Catholic Church. People that would go to Mass on Sunday, you obey the priest, you obey the bishop. Vatican II opened up that we would get back to the gospel, see what the gospel of Jesus was about. And liberation of the person is part of that. And you cannot be a full human being if you do not discern in your own life, what am I being called to? What what's the thing that attracts me that where are my gifts and how I can give them? And Vatican II opened that up for nuns. And we redid our way of life to everybody be discerning what are the needs of the times. And that's how then with that growth in the community, I could go into the death penalty and working on it because we had freedom of movement. Always though with the support of community. I wouldn't be anybody anywhere if I hadn't grown up within the sisterhood who nurtured me, you know, through all my harebrained schemes, I was always yeah, yeah. with crazy stuff about, hey, we could set a boot camp for Jesus out in the woods with young people. We I love that. Them. You love that story? I love that story. You remember how great and practical it was? We had yeah. gotten some land. That's all we had. <laughs> so I'm having to meet with the sisters and I said, yeah, look, we're gonna get these young people in the woods. We're going to have a boot camp for Jesus. They're going to come out on fire with love for Jesus and go work to do justice in the world. And they go, well, Helen, you got any buildings? Well, no, no, right. we're going to build a building. You got a well. You got one. Well, we're going to build a well. I was 
And so the motto about me in the community is, there goes Helen again with her harebrained schemes, feet firmly planted in midair. That's funny. <laughs> so my community helped me grow up. How's that for an introduction, Jesse? That's excellent. Awesome. So with the Vatican too, so was that, was that moment kind of like freeing for you? I was was there any that. a transition you had to make or was, were you like, always oh, that person in, in Vatican II came along and said, now you get to be you? Well, if I was potentially that person. See, we, are put, we have so much potential in us of what we can be. But there has to be like a chemistry that happens where you meet people that change your mind and we, we grow like a plant. We yeah. put out petals. And so with Vatican II, by affirming in us that the spirit is in each person, and to redefine the church, not as the hierarchy and the bishops and the priests, and the, but as the people. It's in the mm -hmm. people and in our own community to trust that God's spirit and divine spark is in each of us. And uh, so it was there in potential. And then it, it flowered, which is the way life happens in yeah. freedom, not imposed. See, I mean, one of the things I'm doing with the book River of Fire is I meet with different groups in universities or faith groups or just anybody who reads the book. And in the reading of the book, they take their own journal notes on their own souls evolving into who they are. And then I get on on Zoom after they've read the book and we share. Like, and one of the key questions is, are you basically a follower that goes along with other people or are you self-assertive and you mm. initiate things in your own life? Which one are you or where are you on? And people share, like, well, I guess I'm really a follower. I wait for other people to have the ideas or whatever. And then I, I get in there, and I, but I don't know that I initiate very much. Just so you begin to have self-awareness. Mm -hmm. See, when you read a book, when you interact with a text, it's not neutral. We are interacting when we read words like, ooh, that challenges me, or ooh, yeah. that inspires me, ooh, I want to be that, ooh. That interaction happens just like our interaction is happening now with live conversation. Yeah. But, uh, it also happens when you read text, when you read the scriptures. I remember when the words came alive for me in the scriptures about the burning bush that Moses encountered and the bush kept burning, but it wasn't consumed. It, how do you keep that fire alive in you? I've been always intrigued by that burning bush. How do you keep the fire in you and the energy in you and you don't burn out? Well, that's got to be some special kind of fire. I want that fire. Anyway, yeah, yeah. I may have a little of that fire. And I obviously <laughs> do that too. Amen, yeah. amen. I'm I'm really interested to know how visiting death row inmates like changed you. Like what what was it? Because I mean, it sounded like you got the invitation. And you were just like because it was just you, and that's your personality. Sure, I'll do that. I want an adventure with the Lord. Let's let's see how that is. But how did that how did that change you after you got actually on the other side? Man, let me tell you. I, you got to know this. This is a little clue. 
all while Tim Robbins was working on the film, writing the screenplay of Dead Man Walking, which became the film. That happened very soon after the book came out. It's very unusual. He kept saying, the nun is in over her head, which indeed I was. First of all, yeah. I was scared to death the first time I went to visit this guy. I mean, there's yeah. this big green sign in the visitor center. Anybody stepping on prison property, subject yourself to this body search, dog sniffing. I was so out of my league and out of my depth. And then I had never met anybody who had murdered anybody. Right. So the guards, it's scary. They lead you and they keep clanging these gates behind you. There are no soft sounds in a prison. It's all cement, iron bars, steel bars, clang, clang. They kept leading me, lead me. And then we rounded a corner and then we were standing in front of the green door, little bars and window at the top and, and red block letters above the green door, death row. They brought me in through that door, locked me in a room and said, well, go get your man. Then I started, I was pacing up and down this room and started getting nervous about him because I went, you know, I've only been writing letters to this guy. Anybody been nice in a letter? Right. But we have two hours, and I've never talked to a murderer before. And I'm just, I had this fear that if you murder somebody, your face must look different. You know, you must be mean looking. And behold, and there, here was the beginning of my awakening. The guards brought in Patrick Sonier, locked him in a small, as big as a telephone booth, there was this heavy mesh metal screen between us. And I looked close through that screen and I saw his eyes and he was smiling. And I went, my God, he's a human being. And it was my Lord first Jesus. insight that everybody's worth more than the worst thing they've ever done. And the journey then began. I love, I love that because that's, that's kind of at the root of so many ways that people uh, justify or excuse the way we treat other people is that we never, we never see them as human beings. We we see them as the label we've given them, and and so few of us actually take the step of, like, let me actually interact with a person. Like, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that a lot of the ignorance, bigotry in the world is is would be gone if people would just interact with the other. Like, you know, if you, if, if you, if you took, well, there's that, what, what's the, Tommy, what's the name of that guy? I don't know if you've heard of him, Sister Helen. Um, he was the, the, wasn't he a jazz musician? And yes, he, he Darryl. is, he builds relationship and friendships with KKK members and has converted them out of that one at a time, one relationship at a time. It's like 50 or 60 of them or something like that. Oh, now at this fantastic. point, over the, over the decades, there was, there was that's a movie a about that. Movie. Yeah. yeah. That was a great movie. And, and that's what it is. Like, like oh yeah, man. That that's right. <laughs> Look at him in the face and the see him as a person. Hey friends, it's Jesse from the Faith Chair team. And I wanted to let you know something that you might not know. You are why we do what we do. You are also the ones who make faith chair podcast reach all around the world if you're enjoying this conversation enjoyed other episodes of the podcast we want to encourage you to like subscribe follow and most of all share with those around you 
so that we can reach as many people, as many hearts, and change as many lives as we can with these ongoing conversations about the questions that arise at the intersection of faith and culture. It's so important, see, because what happens, this is where a power and oppressive structure works. The first thing you do is you make people scared of each other. And did you, mm-hmm. it's an oppressive system in the United States. I mean, the legacy of slavery is so big and present in every single institution and system. From where you can buy a house or get a loan at a bank, the whole penal system that's been set up. So how did the death penalty get set up? See, I've been working now with the public for 35 years to bring them close to it because Americans are good people. The only way you're going to get people to say yes to the death penalty is you got to make people two things. Very afraid. And the other thing is you separate them from seeing what it really means when the government kills people and executions or secret rituals. That's why I'm talking to you right now because I got brought into that. I saw the secret ritual. I saw the killing. So I'm a witness. So I got to tell the story. The other thing you do the way the death penalty was set up by the Supreme Court in 1976, it was based on two things, both of which are flawed. One is the criteria in, by which you decide if you're going to seek the death penalty or not. And what the criteria was, you don't give the death penalty now for just ordinary run-of-the-mill murders. Only for the worst of the worst. Nobody knows what that means. You kill my mother. Of course, it's the worst of the worst. So what happened is with that criteria, when the states put their statutes in to bring back the death penalty, one of the things they did was throw a bushel full of adjectives at, well, it's cruel and heinous and intentional. And then they started adding aggravating circumstances, which makes something the worst of the worst. Of the worst. Including a meritocracy of which victims, when they're killed, their death by the fact of their status in society merits a death penalty, like if you kill policemen. But not if you kill firemen, public health workers, Mm -hmm. teacher, policemen. So you have a kind of meritocracy. These victims, when they're killed, they are going to be considered the worst of the worst because of their valuable status in society. And man, in the way that criteria has been applied, you look at the 1,500 executions, you look at the over 1,200 people still on death row, is, did, it was the victim white. Overwhelmingly, it's only when white people have been killed that the death penalty has been sought. So you want to see racism at play. If your life doesn't have much value, your death doesn't cause any outrage. Come on. Oh, man. So, I mean, there it is. Worst of the worst is the criteria. And you, when you would hear like people running like in Louisiana and the deep South where we've done over 70% of the actual executions, we're the real, the 10 former slave states are the real executioners who actually practice the death penalty. Overwhelmingly, it's people of color that the victim was white and then, boy, you add into it that a person of color killed a person who's white. Then you really won the lottery on the death penalty. You're almost sure to get it. The other thing that, that in the rhetoric, 
that these people are so mean, these people are so evil, these people are natural born killers. We can't even put them in the regular prison because they'll kill guards, they'll kill mm -hmm. other enemies. You so demonize people. And that's, we, we may, we're made to be so afraid of people who murder that that kind of sealed it in people's mind. Oh, well, we have to have the death penalty. We gotta fight fire with fire because we can never trust them to be in prison. They'll get out in a few years and they'll kill again. So okay. that exaggerated fear and that and the, the first fallacy is that you can even know the worst of the worst and in practice we're seeing that's really true and including 185 wrongly convicted people who managed to get off that throat. That's how many mistakes we're making, okay? Because they're all poor and you can't get strong advocacy all the time when you're poor in the And the second thing, the second fault in the Supreme Court in the way they set up the death penalty full discretion given to prosecutors to seek the death penalty or not. We just witnessed Trump and Barr kill 13 people before Trump left office. Why did they kill 13 people? Because they could. Because even though for 17 years on federal death row, there had been no executions, it got into the then the authority came to Trump. If he wanted to kill people, yes, I do. Tells his attorney general Barr, get those executions. I got to be with some of those people before they were executed. My God, you're living your life. Everything's going fine. 17 years, no execution. And then like Brandon Bernard, he's mm -hmm. summoned by the guards one night. You walk down the hall, you go into a room, the warden is there, got a white paper on the table there and says to him, you're gonna be executed in five weeks. Here's the date. And he is then led, and this is a young man who had changed his life completely in prison for 20 years. Everybody loved him. All yeah. of a sudden he gets the word, just solely out of the, the mind and intention of a Donald Trump. And you look at the death penalty around this country, there are counties, there are in a Louisiana parishes, where district attorneys would cut notches on their belt to get death penalty. They would brag in Louisiana when you were a DA and you wanted to run for an office, a higher office, how many death penalties you got. They would give each other back room awards called the Louisiana Ha Ha Prick Award because it's the hypodermic syringes, the state bird, the pelican on a plant flying with hypodermic syringes in the talons which means you got a lethal injection, you got a death penalty, and you run. Oh gosh! And you brag about how many you got. Culture, culture, microcultures within the United States. A lot of states in the Northeast had the death penalty on the books, but they never practiced it. Yeah. Amnesty yeah. says when you look to see a change, you always look first of all for practice, and then finally you change things on the books. And as I'm sure you're aware, Virginia was the first ex-Confederate state to end the death penalty. They had executed over 1,400 people, had the most slaves in Virginia. 400 years of that kind of oppression and, and the killing of people. And the death penalty comes straight on out of that, of that slavery uh, model. See, I, I love that you laid the groundwork for 
the question then for because we Jesse and I are both pastors, and we believe that our calling is to challenge uh, and encourage, especially the the believer, the, the follower of Christ. But it seems that especially after 2020, we've begun to, and it's been happening a lot, but uh, with the events of 2020, more and more believers have taken the side of this world instead of the kingdom that they are that they are really from, uh, that is not of this world. Uh, and they've sided with the death penalty. They've sided with different things that people here on this earth are more concerned with. You, you know what I'm saying? So with that groundwork being laid and this entire discussion is how do we love our neighbor when the, when the facts say that we should not, you know what I'm saying? But What's Jesus that? says, <laughs> You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I know what you're saying. There's a big so, thing about churches yeah. and believers. Yeah. And you know what? It's going to be a challenge to y'all. When you go to speak to them, the more you can speak out of your own experience of what you have had in the experience, not just the words of the scripture, and you know we ought to love each other. It's got to be, well, yeah, where are you coming from, too? Where are you coming from? See, one of the things that needs, that I have found, is... And talking, I've crisscrossed this nation, I can't tell you how many times, but it's to tell people a story and I say to them, let me tell you what happened to me. Mm -hmm. People hear you talk out of personal experience. Here I am, a nun, I don't know anything about the criminal justice system. I get in there and I, in Dead Man Walking, there's a lot of facts. You got to learn how stuff really works. The rhetoric about the death penalty was look at these terrible crimes. Right. And people, the starting point for everybody is outrage when innocent people are killed. Outrage, moral outrage, which is ethical. It's legitimate. Right. I mean, who's not outraged a right. mother carjacked with her children and killed? You feel that outrage. Well, the politicians tapped into that, and the culture, the rhetoric of the culture taps into that and says, therefore, here's our little way of doing justice. If they did and we find them guilty of that, they deserve to die. Right. That's justice. I've heard DAs closing arguments. First of all, you don't have a death penalty if you don't have a DA that seeks death. They always have the choice not to seek death, always. And then they're saying to the jury, and look at that family there. Look how they're suffering. They're never going to see their daughter graduate from college. They're never going to see the grandchildren. And when you go back in that jury room, you do justice for that family. What does justice mean? It means only one thing. Mm -hmm. He killed we kill him. And to do anything less than that is to disrespect that family. And they hold up that they're doing this for the victim's families. So you got to tell victim's family stories. You got to have victim's family speaking about, are you telling me I'm going to wait 15 years? And then what you're offering me is a front row seat while you kill the one who killed my loved one. And I'm supposed to witness this killing and this killing is going to heal me. 
And then that's where the gospel of Jesus becomes just so clear. Right. Is this the gospel of Jesus? Or is this our fear operating? And this is the way people keep power? But we got to know the facts and we got to bring people there. And we have to have the witnesses. Got to have the witnesses of victims' families like Bud Welch. His daughter, Julie Marie, was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing when Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols bombed 168 people killed in that bombing. Here you go, the worst of the worst. Here you go, outrage. And what is Bud Welch, the father, offered? That he will be able to look over closed-circuit TV and watch as the federal government kills Timothy McVeigh, and he gets to watch it. And he soon figured out he was drinking, he was smoking five packs of cigarettes, the anger in him was consuming him, and the liberation stories of victims like Bud Welch is, wait a minute, Timothy McVeigh killed my daughter, but I'm not gonna let him kill me. I'm not gonna let this rage, see, and then, and that insight, this is in Dead Man Walking, the story of Lloyd LeBlanc's son David was killed by Patrick Sonia and his brother. The first real insight I got into forgive means to give before. It doesn't mean condone. That's great. <laughs> and at yeah. that point where Lloyd LeBlanc yeah. actually, he was consumed with anger. All he could think about was, I want to kill him for killing my son. And then mm -hmm. he put his hand out like this, like stop. And he said, Look, they killed my boy, but I'm not going to let him kill me. I'm going to do what Jesus said. And then forgiveness has a meaning. It means I'm not going to let my own soul be consumed with anger so that I want to do to them what they did to my son because then I got a killer instinct too. I might try to legalize it, but boy, it is killing. Guess what you have to write on the death certificate after you execute somebody? when they say cause of death. What do you have to write down after they execute people, cause uh, of death? What do you think they put? Uh, heart attack. May not be a heart attack. They may have a massive stroke. You don't know what's going massive on. Massive stroke, right, right. You well, don't know? Uh, what, what do they put? Jesse, you got a guess on this? I don't actually know. Cause of death? Homicide. You're kidding me. Because the definition is human beings killing another human being. They have to tell the truth on the death certificate. Wow. They have legalized homicide. And they have all their rhetoric about why they got to do it. But it is, in its essence, that's why maybe you've seen a bumper sticker or two. Why do we kill people to try to show that killing people is wrong? And so, just because you legalize something doesn't make it right. So you, you mentioned the story... Uh, uh, in the book, and I love that I was going to bring that up about how the father said, uh, talked about forgiveness and wanted to actually walk out what Jesus was talking about and actually extend that forgiveness to someone else. How was uh, you were a sister? You're a sister. I'm, I know that's what we're supposed to do in, in, and we preach about. But how did you practically use that when you met people like Patrick Sonier and and, and the rest of these men, and even when you transition from being surrounded, how you talked about in River Fire, surrounded by your world was lily white. I, I think you, that's how you put it. And now you're around people that 
you've heard about and even meeting Martin Luther King, like those two dichotomies of I want to show Jesus love, but I haven't been able to show it to this group of people. Or now I have to show it to someone who the rest of my the rest of my uh, camp is like, yeah, well, they deserve to die. Well, now I'm actually facing I'm face to face. Like you said, I saw his eyes and I knew there was a human being there. You, you know what I'm saying? So how did you practically do those things? Well, I mean, <clears throat> you have to sit at the feet of people and learn. See, humility means we can always learn from each other. In fact, there's no one that we can't learn from. So when I leave the suburbs here in New Orleans and move among African-American people and they, be, they are my peers, they are my neighbors, and they are my teachers because I was so cushioned with privilege. And when you're cushioned with privilege, you don't recognize it as, as privilege. And, and poor, I was waking up all over the place. Here I am in the adult learning center where I've been given this education, just grammar school, high school, college. And in education, you learn who you are. You discover your gifts. You also discover that you have agency. You can give speeches, you can write articles, you can change the world. And here people are coming in like Miss Ruby. She was 75. She worked in the fields as a child. Then she cleaned white people's houses. She wanted to learn how to read before she died because she was really interested in this guy, Moses, that Moses could go up on that mountain. He could go in that tent and he could talk to God. He'd come down, his face would be shiny, he had to put a veil. She wants to learn about Moses. So we are sitting together and she is learning to read at 75 because she wants to know about Moses. I went, wow, look at this woman, how she's worked her whole life and never had a chance. Look, I was given education, just given it. And here comes a kid. He had dropped out of the public schools in New Orleans when he was a junior. And you see, you work with people individually. And I went, well, Willie, look, you only had one more year to go. So look, we're going to work with you individually on your math, your reading, your English. He couldn't read a third grade reader, and he's going to graduate in a year. He's a black kid in New Orleans. Even if he had graduated from the public school, he couldn't read functionally, couldn't read. And it threw me back on myself that I was given all this. And then, of course, sitting with some of the great leaders in the African-American community, patient enough to teach one more white lady, here's how it works, and teach me about systemic racism and the difference between prejudice and racism. Prejudice is an individual. I may not like you, I'm prejudiced against you. People can be prejudiced against gay people. People can be prejudiced against Whatever, men could be prejudiced against women, whatever, you can, that's individual. When you get to racism, it's because it's got the power of institution behind it. Even linguistically in a language, boy, they are taking us to, like, let's look at the dictionary here. Let's look at the definition of white. What does the dictionary say? White, pure, lily white, white as snow, good, black. Black ball, black list, black bad. So in the awakening in the 60s, black is beautiful, 
became the first anthem, which is going to lead to Black Lives Matter. Yeah. But so you begin to, I, I, I had everything to understand about this, see about, oh, it's institutionalized. The banking system, institutionalized. Housing, institutionalized. That gentrification was going on in New Orleans and Geraldine, who worked with us at Hope House and lived in the, and she said, we can't move out of here. We got, mm -hmm. and there's violence infested, uh, drug infested, police looking the other way when black people kill each other. I want to move my kids. I can see them changing, but I can't afford. Then and it's like we're living on a reservation. And then, then you get to minimum wage, you get to jobs, you get to all these things in the system that just are you know, keeping black people down, not just down, but being told you're nothing, you're worse than nothing. We have reason to fear you. It has just been present in our country. The killing of George Floyd, there's this saying from Latin America, what the eyes don't see, the heart can't feel. Mm -hmm. And people in their homes, because maybe COVID helped, because they're in their homes, they're not at their jobs, they're not shopping nine minutes and 29 seconds to actually witness the life being squeezed out of that man who can't breathe. That helped change the consciousness, especially of white people who then began to join for the first time. We're witnessing a seismic change here. It's just the beginning. Because we look how long we have lived with this legacy. And the first thing in the debate would be, well, that's one bad app. But most please, because they don't have any experience. White people don't have any experience being stopped by policemen. I'm a good witness to that, because I speed a lot, I got to confess, public confession. <laughs> <laughs> I a lot. And I've read all these things. I've never been scared of the policemen. Sometimes I even joke with them back and forth. Hey, sister, you got a heavy lead foot. You got to eat. Joking back and forth. Yeah. Right? People talking to each other, okay? And yeah. they Catholics, this Catholic nun, boy, they're going to play. I'm going to play that nun card, too, boy. I'm going to just say, hey, mercy, mercy. <laughs> but for black people, I've never been afraid for my life when the policemen stop. And then here I am in St. Thomas. Here I am at Hope House. Here we are at a community meeting. And I'm, I'm hearing every young black man talk about what had happened when the police stopped. And so you go, this isn't one bad apple. This is systemic racism. And this is the first time in the country we are ever beginning to, it's just the first steps of dealing with it. So white people are good, but if you separate it from experience, then it's you live like in this bubble. And, and what can break out of it? People got to meet each other. Maybe you could be the ones to start. Let's have breakfast across this nation where white people in white churches go meet and for breakfast, people, black people, just bring people together in some kind of setting. It could be in a faith setting. You have breakfast together. You talk to each other. You pray together. If we could set up those breakfasts across this nation, people got to meet each other. Yeah. How do you meet each other? Like Martin Luther King used to say, Sunday's the most segregated day of the week in America. Mm -hmm. 
got to meet each other. Look at me. Look how long it took me. And then I got to tell you this. When I grew up as a child in Baton Rouge, it was in the 40s and 50s. It was during Jim Crow. And here's how culture, it gives you glad, gives you eyes to see and ears to hear. And you interpret life through your culture, see? The fears of your culture, whatever. And when I go to church, Sacred Heart Church in Baton Rouge, black people had to sit over there in suction. Black kids couldn't receive their Holy Communion with white kids, which is the symbol. This is the embodiment of how we are all one in Christ. We had a couple, Ellen and Jesse, that worked for my family. Ellen worked in the house with Mama. Jesse worked in the yard. They lived in the servants' quarters in the back of our big two-story house. My daddy was a successful lawyer. Here we are, the white people. And I never questioned it. A good mom and daddy saying to me, well, honey, it's better for the races to be separate because that people fight when they get together. Never questioned it. And the way faith breaks through there is there's an experience. Mm. There's an experience. First of all, an awakening, spiritual awakening to understand the words of Jesus when he said, blessed are the poor. And before, I always thought that meant, yeah, because one day they're going to have a great reward in heaven. Yeah, well, they're suffering more with Jesus now, but one day their reward is going to be great. And I heard a talk. I talk about it in River Fire for the first time. I got it about Jesus, that how can you preach good news to poor people without telling them it is not the will of God for you to be poor? You have a right to struggle for this, what is rightfully yours. Mm-hmm. You fight to struggle. And I realized I've been praying for poor people, but I wasn't doing a lick to join them in the struggle. And I woke up, and that's what led me then to move into the St. Thomas Housing Project, where African-American people then became my teachers. About the other American, how things work. But see, people are good. Give people a chance to wake up, and they're going to they're gonna respond. I love it. It it's it sounds like, and this is something Jess and I talk about all the time. That uh, when Jesus actually, when you actually meet Jesus and you you actually listen to what his word, what he said, and see what he's done, and you have that experience with him, that opens your eyes or awakens you to the actual selfless life that he lived. Because you can't help other people if you're always thinking. About yourself, and is one one of the things that we've been. I've definitely been um, struggling with uh, the realization in my own life that I've lived selfishly for so long. <laughs> you know we what I'm saying? Live. We all yeah. live out of ego until we change. We yeah. all do, and we will be living out of ego. Always. What What about me? How is this affecting me? We mm-hmm. can't help that. But grace is greater than that. And, uh, and and so when we, the important thing is when we wake up, what do we do? The action things. If we don't act out of our new insight that we have, you kind of, you get, you start double thinking, second thinking it. What about this? What about that? And you don't act, you get more paralyzed. See, awakening is dangerous because you got to move when you're awakened to start. That's right. And I mean, and you look at Jesus, Jesus is coming out of, the Jewish tradition, and you read Leviticus, and you read Deuteronomy about the orphan and the widow, the alien, 
And to, you had to grow your crops in a way that you left an edge that people could go, the poor could go and glean that wheat mm -hmm. to be able mm -hmm. to be fed. He comes out of that tradition. So when he announces his mission in Luke, what is he saying? I've come to teach you that you can pray and always go up in the citadel and be close to God. I have come. Right. Liberate the prisoners. That's right. He, he goes in Luke, he's quoting the whole thing in Isaiah and those prophets to go to, and I love what Pope Francis, we got a Jesus man, Pope Francis, let me tell you that. You know how Come he defines, how he defines <laughs> believers yeah. is we are to, supposed to be the field hospitals out near where the wounded are and not just being a religion of we got the correct dogma and we gather and we pray every week and all that, we're out there. And he called that we should be a field hospital. So for the first time, I'll go into a prison. The funny thing was, I went to Girl Scout camp, and it was right across from where Angola Prison is, right across the main highway. And of course, little giggly little sixth grade girls giggling at night. Ooh, the convicts gonna come over from Angola, man. They gonna come in here, man. They gonna do. <laughs> and look, and then later in my life, when I wake up, I'm going into that prison. Yeah. And I'm also finding life in that prison and courage in that prison and grace in the human beings of what they're teaching me. That man I'm accompanying right now on death row in Louisiana, his name is Manuel Ortiz. He's from El Salvador. He's going on 30 years and he's innocent and trying to break through in the courts to get the story told of what the jury didn't hear and how the truth wasn't told and was hidden and was lied about at his trial. And that man has more courage. And every time I visit with him and call him, we just got word, by the way, that after this COVID thing, we can go visit again. Oh, mm -hmm. and to be mm -hmm. able to visit, you're in isolation and he, he came from El Salvador. He was one day from getting citizenship. He turns up to go take the, the oath to become a citizen. They didn't have a quorum. One day before all this stuff happened, and they're accusing him of this murder that he did not do. I mean, and he, he was so shocked. He thought the United States of America had the best court system and justice in the world. And here he is now, going on 30 years. Are you called to ministry? Then you need to know about SUM Seattle. The goal of SUM Seattle is to raise up and equip the ministry leaders of the future church. Our aim is that SUM Seattle students graduate our program with the competence, education, and a foundation for ministry for the rest of their lives. Through leadership and mentoring, our students will have access to ministry in large urban communities and inner city outreaches. They will enjoy partnering with local ministries, as well as growing and developing their personal ministry calling. SUM Seattle offers a unique and affordable education, all while engaging in practical ministry experiences. For more information, visit cityviewchurch.com forward slash SUM Seattle today. I can't walk away from him without being encouraged and don't you dare sweat all these little things you think you got to go through. Look at Manuel and what he's going through. Look Man. at his spirit. And you're not rooted in God 
when you're going through this stuff, you just collapse in it. You just collapse into it. I mean, just, he's amazing. He's amazing. Let me ask you this question, Sister Helen. With all that experience, especially like the contrast between how you grew up to the experiences you had later in life, how would you react? How would you respond to the statement, America is a Christian nation? Oh, God. Oh, man. Man, I hate to see what's how Christianity is used as weaponized. It is weaponized. We are not a Christian nation. We have plurality. We have Muslims. We have Jewish people. How could we claim to be Christian? And then the brand of Christianity is right because look at that prejudice against gay people. People quoting the Bible, literally. And so you have these Christians. I mean, even in the Catholic Church, we got to sort this thing out. Of not blessing the union of gay people. Yeah. Prejudice against gay people comes right out of the Bible. And it's definitely in... And you combine Christianity with white supremacy, and look, you got a lethal combination claiming it is Christian. Let me give you an example. Attorney General, when he was the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, when they were separating the children from their parents at the border, in the southern border, they are taking these children from their parents, putting them in these camps, And he justified it by quoting the scriptures. Here we go, Christian nation. Going to quote the epistle of St. Paul. Justice Scalia did use the same quote from the epistle of St. Paul to justify the death penalty. Like, we're Christian. And what he quoted from St. Paul was that if these people are coming across, these parents bringing their kids, they are breaking our law. And that, that quote from St. Paul, obey civil authority because it is the authority of God. He quoted that. As I mentioned, Scalia did too. And so what he was saying was, if these parents come and they say they seek an asylum, but they break in the law, and it's on them that we separate their children from them. Because what we, our law, represents the authority of God. And it gives you an arrogance when you claim to be speaking from God or you claim to be of the religion that represents God and the others. You know, look how it's used. I've seen it used to uphold the death penalty. I've seen it. And what you do is it's called, and y'all going to be familiar with this, biblical quarterback. I'll toss you my biblical quote. Oh, look, the Old Testament said those that shed blood will have their blood shed. Then I'm going to quote I will throw you one of uh, Ezekiel. What do, I don't desire the death of the sinner, but mercy. Biblical quarterback. And you can use biblical quotes because the Bible is filled with life and with death. The Bible is filled with vengeance and the, and the Bible is filled with mercy. And so Christianity, Jesus, Pope Francis, it's compassion. And finally, it coincides with human rights. Because you got a lot of people now that don't go to church. A lot of people. But human rights. The UN Declaration of Universal Human Rights was declared in 1948. Article 3, inalienable right to life 
that every human being, simply by being a person, has, inalienable, which means governments don't give those human rights nor for good behavior, nor can they take it away for bad behavior. Yeah. Right to life, Article 3, also the right not to be tortured and to receive cruel punishment, that which is against your dignity. Right now, we don't have a court that can recognize when they even read the Eighth Amendment cruel punishment, that they can translate that into humanity and into compassion. They have blinders on all their privilege and the way that they legalize things. When when you want to do something, you legalize it, like slavery. You're going to make mm -hmm. it. You know, you, if you taught mm -hmm. a slave to read, you were breaking the law. Law as far as it goes, but it's when it's rooted in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the path we can all follow if you go to church or not. And you know what we found in the mid-80s when, I mean, the death penalty is like Louisiana, we killed eight people in eight and a half weeks in the 80s. A poll showed, poll showed the more people went to church, the more they believed in the death penalty. Because what were they getting? Jesus was crucified he was executed by the state. And that's what saved us from our sin. And what kind of God does that make it, that wants the death of a son to kind of avenge or, or to settle God's need for justice? Kill my son. And so people interpreting that, you see how when it's shallow and you just read words of scripture, this just happened in Wyoming two years ago. They were one vote away from repealing the death penalty. And a woman in the Senate, she they needed her vote, and it would have been repealed. They don't practice it much. It's just, let's get it off the books. And she said, no, because if Jesus hadn't been executed by the Romans, we wouldn't be saved from our sins. Oh. What is a person oh. being executed got to do wow. with saving you? What is saving okay. you? I had, I had never Look heard that, that particular justification. That's, wow. That's crazy. That is crazy. But where's the compassion? See, finally, look at Buddhism. Look at the heart of the Quran and compassion and mercy. The heart of religion is the heart of human rights. It is compassion. Cain, where's your brother? Who is my brother? Where is my sister? That the way you began, Tom. Neighbor. Who is my Who is my neighbor? Yeah. Who is my neighbor? And we all have our little way of defining that. And that hmm. good Samaritan parable, Jesus busted it loose. Wide open. Because the priests went by. They didn't want to see. The key, the key was, it said that person in the ditch was half dead. Mm -hmm. So if you care about the purity laws, and if you go down in that ditch, you got to roll a person over. You got to touch them, see if they're dead or not. But if you touch the dead body, you were considered impure and you couldn't go to the temple. So the priest okay. going by, they look, I ain't touching that. I'm not right. taking the risk that I'm impure and I can't go to the temple. I got to get to Ooh. church. And Jesus wow. busted that loose because the Samaritan didn't know about much about the purity laws, but he knew about compassion and Jesus mm -hmm. holding him. Compassion. Yeah. It's that ability to feel. That's why that video of George Floyd, you look long enough at that suffering of the knee of that guy on that guy's neck, and it can help people go, ooh, that's murder. That's yeah. murder.
So I love I love what you said earlier about the the eye scene, right? Because I mean that was the turning point in the original civil rights movement was when the television broadcast right. to the nation all that what was happening with this brutality with the police, right? It had just been stories and news articles up until then, but when they right. saw it with their own eyes, I had never thought of George Floyd's murder from that perspective, that that's why it, it has become such a linchpin in the, in the movement. Because and you know, there have been two court cases to try to make executions public. Let the people see what we're doing here, right? So that's why I got in there. What did I know? You know, that's the prelude. That's the part of the fire in my book, River of Fire. Mm -hmm. The prelude is they killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him in a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act because he had killed. No religious leaders protested that night. None. But I was there. I yeah. saw it with my own eyes, and what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire that burns in me still. And now here's an account of how I came to be in the killing chamber that night and the spiritual currents that brought me there. I, I have to ask, is it always, was it always compassion that was your expected end for every visit? Because we were raised that if you're, if we're going to do anything for the community, uh, backpack, haircuts, food, uh, if we go to the prison, it always for the purpose of proselytization. The end result is that they say the sinner's prayer and they accept Jesus. The end result was never for them to know that they were loved by people outside the community. So what was your uh, was compassion the thing that drove you or was, was the end result and making this person become a religious person? Was that, was that it? Absolutely. It was compassion, of course, because to proselytize is you got a little goal and you got a little quote and you're trying to use that person to your end. Mm. Never would proselytize. Some of the people I've been with have executed and have any what you call faith. Yeah. That God is present in people and it doesn't have to fit these categories of religion. Or like you hear of some groups that poor people who are hungry can eat, they gotta listen to this long talk and they gotta accept Jesus. I mean, that is so let me stop you on your last that meal. Is arrogant. Have you ever met right, right. Say you believe in my God and who I believe in, I ain't gonna feed you. Man, what wow. is that? We had a we had a we are a we took our, our youth group. Well, it got for the last year and this year because of COVID, it's been canceled. But for a number of years we've taken our youth group to serve at a camp for campers with special needs. And uh, a couple of years ago, we had a, a young girl join us who we, we didn't know. She was a friend of a girl in the youth group. And so we met her for the first time when she came to camp. And uh, we always debrief at the end of the week and, and talk through the experiences with the kids. And, and she shared that. 
she was like, you know, until I came to this camp, my experience of Christians in the church was, you know, for some, some years in her younger childhood, her and her mom and, and siblings had been homeless. And every time they reached out to a church for help, that was, there was always that string attached. If you want to sleep here, okay, you got to come to service. If you want some food, you got to listen to this sermon. If you, you know, and it was always that, and that was her experience. And that, that has always stuck with me. Like, yeah, that is what a lot of churches do. Like, we're not going to do an outreach, you know, we're not going to do anything for the community. We're not going to serve unless it's going to result in more butts in the seats, unless it's going to result in salvations that we can break to people about, um, it's almost like a business model. Like we need to have, we need to have results to share with our shareholders so that they'll continue to invest in the business. Right. Um, And yeah, and we fool ourselves. We pretend that it's compassion. We pretend that it's the love of God, Um, but it's really not because we have these strings attached. We have ulterior motives. And the problem is, is the world knows that they feel it. They experience it. (laughs) And right. they don't and it walk just, away from it. And they're not gonna. They only people are attracted to what is real. Yeah. The principle of attraction to meet real compassion. With Pope Francis, he his whole thing is mercy. Maybe legally this, this, but mercy, compassion for each other, is everything. And it's just we. There's so many separations that we. And not because people are necessarily bad, but just look how neighborhoods, suburbs, and people separated from each other. Rural people. I mean, that has really kind of uh, become evident in the elections where people who are out in the country feel, you know, well, we don't have a college education. Don't look down on us because we're not educated like you are. There are so many separations that can happen. And it just shows how vulnerable we really are. And mm. insecure. whenever you got to do that, I'm one notch above you, bud. We got to put somebody down for us to be up. Man, that ain't wholeness. Wholeness is I'm human with you and you take away my cushions and all those things that I've been given. I'm going to be right there with you and I am capable of anything, anything. Where, where, you wrote a letter to the Pope and you read it at the end of, of your book. Um, and it sounds like he's, he's more open to extending compassion uh, to where it's far reaching, where in times past, especially before Vatican II, it hadn't really been, it didn't extend outside as much as it, it extended inside. Um, how is there, uh, what areas do you see there's still room for growth in? Oh man, the Catholic ours? Church. We yeah. we really the the church documents still say that gay people are intrinsically defective. That God can't bless. Uses those words. Yeah. And so and see, look at religion. Look at religion. That gay people don't feel free to come to a church to celebrate uh, because. They're considered defective beings. I mean, that's the whole thing stamped from the beginning about racism, where Jeff Davis, when he was in the Senate, before he became the Confederate press, said black people have been stamped from the beginning to be inferior and be the servants of white people. Yeah, yeah. That's superior and inferior. That's going on with gays now. 
and trains people now. That's big. Yeah. People. Yeah, see, and that's that's how we psychologically get past things like the the accords, right? Because because we don't have to worry about inalienable rights if we are able to define you as not human. Yeah. That's what happened right? in Guantanamo and the torturing of people in Guantanamo considered terrorists. See, right away, here's legalism. Well, the Geneva Conventions, which came into effect, you know, after the World Wars, you cannot torture prisoners. And they say, this is Bush who did this with the help of his lawyers. Well, they're not prisoners of war, they're enemy combatants. And they may have knowledge of terrorist acts. And they waterboarded people and smashed their faces against the wall and hung them from their thumbs. And call it, they wouldn't call it torture. Mm. They legalized it. You changed the label. Not it's interrogation. Enhanced interrogation. I mean, I work and love and I'm close to some of the lawyers that work with people in Guantanamo. Muslim people. Look at one of the first things Trump did, try to block Muslim people from coming into the country. So you do it with ethnic groups. You do it with, well, people, I mean, in, you know, you do it with the death penalty too. But look, look how we do it in so many ways. So gay people, transgender people, the Catholic church, and it's bubbling up. I love this song that says, truth springs up from the ground. People can have experiences. Truth springs up from the ground. Women, I can preach all over this country and before the United Nations, I can't preach in a Catholic church because I'm a woman. Right. It's gonna change, it's gotta change. That's what the yeah. letter to the Pope is about. You say we all baptized in Christ. You say we all made the image of Christ. Well, it seems men are made the image of Christ better than the women are made the image of Christ because we let them preach. But the women, simply because they're women, can't preach that sexism, pure and simple. Right. So you speak the truth and you grow. Man. Like we're what? doing here. Y'all got a great thing going here. I don't want to. I don't want to end this conversation without. I wanted to ask a question to tie two things we've talked about together. How how do you see? Because you have experience in both, and you've been working in both areas, and we've talked about it. How do you see the line from the ethos of the death penalty connecting with police brutality and police violence? Yeah. First of all, the use of violence to keep social order. The death penalty epitomizes that. What we have to do with these murderers is they killed and so we're gonna kill them. And the horror of even promising a victim's family if they wait 20 years, they get to watch as we are gonna kill the one who killed your loved one and that's gonna give you peace. It's that use of violence to keep control, epitomized. So, you look at where is the intersection for the most part of the capacity for violence in the police force and the militarized police that has happened with black people. 
boom, it's in, it's in there. So the connection. I want to say this about the death penalty. It's not a peripheral moral issue about what we should do with people who've done terrible crimes. All the wounds of our country are in the death penalty. Only poor people are selected to die. Anybody with money is going to get a crackerjack lawyer and any DA is going to think a hundred times before you take on that person to try to go for the death penalty because you can be met at every step with pre-trial motions, investigation, expert witnesses. So it's all poor people. It's only poor people who have ever been executed on death row. You'll never find a rich person because they're going to get a defense that DAs don't want to go up against. Only poor people are selected. All the wounds, racist, overwhelmingly the killing of white people, as we mentioned before. And the third is just what you pointed to, Jesse is the use of violence to try to solve social problems instead of dealing with the roots, as is beginning to happen with some of the things now before Congress to deal with poverty, to some of the, to cut child poverty in half, to have education for people, to have a minimum wage for people, to have jobs. That's how justice grows. You grow a just society. You give people what they need. And they're not going to be committing crimes. Or I noticed in St. Thomas, kids would turn into drugs as a sub-economy because they knew if they got a little job at McDonald's, they're going to be getting a minimum wage. And you don't work to get out of poverty. They were always going to be in poverty. So you make money by doing drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So the three wounds against poor people, the racism, and the using of violence to keep control. It's all in the death penalty. Yeah. 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 I've talked about this before, but, um, and, and you don't know this, we, we didn't introduce ourselves to you. I'm a criminal justice major. I did two years of law school before realized that God wasn't calling me to be a lawyer, but to be a pastor. But uh, so I have a lot of background and uh, a lot of, I still have a lot of passion and heart in these areas of justice and the criminal justice system. Right. But, um, you know, like you talked about the, 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 the poverty, um, the racism, uh, just the, it's just so blatant. Um, one of the things that was really interesting when I was a youth chaplain and I was trying to look up uh, some some of the demographic statistics for it. And I realized, because I have enough of a background to realize that they were intentionally combining certain groups to fudge the numbers. So they were combining kids who were on house arrest with kids who were incarcerated in juvie to fudge the numbers because overwhelmingly the kids on house arrest were white and the kids mm. in juvie, cause I'm in juvie. So I'm like, I, I'm looking at their numbers. And I'm like, I know that eight out of 10 of the kids that I work with are black and Brown, but your numbers are trying to say it's 50, 50. So I dug a little bit deeper and realized, Oh, they combined these two yeah, things yeah, yeah, yeah. to make it look like it wasn't as, yeah. you know, you know, cause again, if people could see, Right. If the statistics were mm-hmm. real and they could, and there was a news report, and they could see the fact that these, that this is what the numbers were, well, then there would be an outroar, yeah. you know. Uh, and and uh, so th- you talk about systemic, and it's just like we don't even realize that the systems are working even to hide the reality, right? So that we don't even know what's going on. So you talk about like executions are private. There's a whole lot of other things in the system right. too that are being fudged, so that we don't even realize. 
And we think we know how bad it is. We don't even know the half of it because yeah. they're hiding it. They're actively hiding it because they know yeah. how bad it is. And part of the I, journey that we need to make as people of faith and, uh, and, and those of us who are more privileged, we really got to use our minds and we got to dig into this. How does the economy work? What are the facts? How are they presented to us? How is racism and how even in the giving of statistics, we got to use our minds and we got to really do analysis of, of things in the social order. Look, guys, I'm going to need to leave you now because I got to go. But I will love this. It was so great. My brother. Uh, thank you so much. I met some for, brothers. Yeah. <laughs> We're so appreciative of your time. And where can people go if they want to find out more about Sister Helen Prejean and what is next for Sister Helen Prejean? Okay. And then I want y'all to send. We got a really good social media. We, we, yeah. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You know, the where you go is sisterhelen.org www.sisterhelen.org and just it'll bring into everything YouTube stuff I've done a lot of stuff awesome. anyway Sister Helen Prejean thank you so much for joining us on the Faith Care today it was an, an immense pleasure and we look forward to having more conversation and finding out what God is continuing to do in and through amen. your life amen my brother thank Yo. you Tommy thank you Jesse have an awesome Take care. day thank you onward thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening. Join us next time. Yes, please join us next time as Jesse and I continue to answer questions that arise at the intersection of faith and culture.